Okay, so we're in 1 Samuel 17. We are looking at this theme, pursuing the heart of God, chasing God's heart. How do we be men and women after God's own heart? We're looking at our great champion today. And you know, there are giants in the land, and we have huge problems, and we're looking for a champion to take on the giants. And uh, otherwise, I'm afraid we, we don't stand a chance. And we're looking at this classic story in the Bible of David versus Goliath at good overcoming evil, at what, what looked like impossible odds. And it's the underdog versus the champion. Of course, you already know how it ends. So, I mean, it's a template really for the greatest battle of all time that's still ahead, that really has already been won by Jesus Christ. I mean, it's big versus little, it's experience versus rookie, it's power versus skill, it's hate versus love. And we've been tracking with David, who even as a young person was called a man after God's own heart. He's chosen by God early in his life, and he's responded with humility and integrity and obedience. And uh, last week we looked at how the prophet Samuel went to this little village of Bethlehem, found Jesse, and um, gathered with his sons because he wanted to anoint one of them to be king because that's what God had told him. You see, God is aware of what's happening in this world. God is working in this world in his own way to, to bring things uh, to a conclusion that uh, brings people who love him into his presence to live forever. And Samuel, God had to explain even to the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Man's looking at the outward appearance. God is looking at the heart. He's looking at our hearts today. And so as Samuel looked at the sons of Jesse, the first one, Eliab, God said, nope, he's not it. The next one, nope, 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 all through the first seven. But when they got to the youngest one, David, he said, that's the one, anoint him. And says, then the Spirit of God rushed on to David and guided him the rest of his life. Now, Today happens to be the celebration of Pentecost in the church. It's seven weeks after Easter. It's the day that's remembered where Jesus had already left uh, the earth for heaven. He told his disciples, go and pray in Jerusalem, and you will receive power from on high. And on the, that Pentecost Sunday, uh, the power came from on high. The, over the, the disciples and those who were gathered with them were touched by God's Spirit. God's Spirit filled them, and the, the crowd gathered. They began to, Peter began to speak. You can read it in Acts chapter 2. But the church was born, and all the believers received God's Spirit poured out on them and into their life. God wants to be actively in a relationship with people like you, and He wants to be a significant factor in your thoughts and in your conversations and in your decisions and in your courage and your family and your life. He wants you to follow the lead of God's Holy Spirit. So at first, after David was anointed, God's Spirit guided him right back out to take care of the same sheep. He went back to the same anonymous, boring, mundane job that he had before. But David did it without complaining. Because to pursue God is just to keep following God in humility and obedience wherever he leads you. And then David was called on by the king because the king was disturbed and he wanted a musician to come and play. And David had gotten known for his skill playing an instrument. So he was called on by King Saul to come and soothe the savage beast within. And in the process, he learned about King Saul and about his court and about his decision-making style and about how things worked in government. And, you know, the next event... Uh, the Holy Spirit guided David into, thrust him into national prof uh, prominence, even as a teenager. And it wasn't even with any warning. He was going to, it was one of the biggest challenges of his entire life. 
We were talking about this this week, and Pastor Eric, who's currently on a bus right now with about 40-some teenagers headed to Hume Lake, said, you know, it was kind of crazy that the whole nation was at such a dire uh, spot that they trusted one teenager with their national security. If he won, they won. If he lost, they became slaves. They would lose everything. I mean, it kind of shows us God's sense of humor, I think, that God doesn't choose the, the wisest people or the richest people or the strongest people or the most beautiful people of this world. God loves to use little people to do the impossible. God loves to work through humble people who have chosen to love him and follow him, even if it's not popular and to obey him, to show his power, and to confound the mighty of this world. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, the background a little bit is David's older three brothers are in the army, and <clears throat> so David is back at home tending the sheep. His dad, Jesse, calls him and says to him, verse 17, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them, basically back to me. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine, of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. So we're arriving a little late to the party, along with David, and he's bringing refreshments for his brothers and for their commander, and he's supposed to gather news from home and bring it back to dad, or bring news from home and then take news back to dad. But David comes around the corner, and he runs right into the conflict. I'm guessing he could hear Goliath bellowing before he even got where he could see anything. But they've been camped in uh, trench warfare positions for over a month. So what you've got is you have the enemy on one hillside, and then kind of a, a, a valley with a river in it, and then on this other side are the Israelite army. And uh, the enemy champion has come out, and he's yelling at them. They're kind of in a stalemate and uh, just kind of sitting there. So Goliath shows up. He's this imposing giant. He calls for a challenge. He's scoffing at their fears. He's smearing the name of the Lord their God. And David learns that this has been going on for 40 days. And the army from the smallest to the tallest are petrified. They are frozen in fear, including King Saul, who, remember, was chosen because he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. So I'm assuming he's at least a foot taller than anybody else would have been. He should have been the guy that went out into the fight. In fact, it wasn't in warfare. It wasn't until about 250, 300 years ago that somebody figured out, you know, the guy who goes first is in the front. That was always the general. It was always the most, the bravest, the leader. They figured out they die when they're up there in the front. So it was about 250 years ago they said, let's put him in the back and have communications go up to the front and tell him what to do and save his life. And so we still do it that way today. But in their way of fighting, King Saul should have been the first guy out there uh, to meet the enemy head on. There's a giant in the land, Goliath. 
And he has some pretty impressive statistics. If we go back to verse 4, it says, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit's about 18 inches. And so he's about nine foot tall, a little taller than nine feet. Uh, it's not impossible. In modern times, the tallest guy uh, was eight foot 11. At, uh, you know, he had some or abnormality going on in his body. He was still growing at 24 years old when he died. Um, and uh, so Goliath is this one huge guy. He would have been one intimidating problem. Verse 5 says he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's over 125 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's That's 15 pounds. Which if you, in the Olympics, the shot put for the men is a 16-pound shot put. And the record, world's record, is about 25 yards, 75 feet. And so Goliath is out there. He's smearing God's people. He's smearing God's name. Look at verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Hey, why have you come out to draw up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you'll be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Fear captured them. There was fear and angst in every man in the army. And it appears that they've agreed to this representative battle where one man from each side is going to come out. No use everybody getting bloodied. No use having all that loss of life. Just have your champion come out and uh, take on our champion. And uh, whoever wins, their side wins. Now, it's just that nobody from the Israel side wanted to step up and be that one man. They didn't think they stood a chance. They they didn't want to die. I mean, it was kind of the same kind of battle like Brad Pitt in Troy, uh, if you've seen that. But, you know, where one guy is going to take on the challenge for the, the whole army. And at that time, the Philistines had a monopoly on iron. So weapons like spears and swords were hard to come by for the Israelites. It says in 1 Samuel 13 that they actually had gone out to a fight just previous to this one, and not one person on the Israel's arm, in the Israel army had a spear or a sword that was made out of any metal, and that there was no blacksmith to be found in uh, in the land of Israel. The Philistines had a monopoly on that, and they said they're going to come to us to have their plows sharpened or their axes or their sickles. And they took control of that so that they were technologically superior. So you had one side with, with spears and swords, and you had the other with sticks and stones. It was not going to be a fair fight. But here comes David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's filled with God's spirit that's leading him right into the middle of this fight. And he's willing to stand for God and to stand alone if necessary. So he starts asking some questions. Well, what has the king said? What's going to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And he's defying the armies of the living God. And they said, well, you're gonna, the family will have, be freed from taxes and uh, you'll get to marry the king's daughter and you'll be rich and famous. Then verse 28 says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men asking these questions. 
We know that Eliab had been at home when David was anointed, that Eliab had been passed over. But here on the battlefield, to have his little brother show up, this is just too much. And he's the first to try to discourage David. Kind of, I'm guessing he gets him in a headlock. What are you doing here, little kid? You're runt. You're just grandstanding, aren't you? You want to think like you got in on part of the battle or have something to say about it or looking for glory. What about your sheep back down the hill? Have you forgotten about them? Are you, uh, you know, you're derelict of duty? Get lost, kid, is basically what he said to him. So sometimes, you know, family members can be the greatest discouragement when we try to follow God's leading in our lives. Or when we want to do something great for God. Well, listen to them because they're your family, but follow God anyway. David had also gotten the attention of King Saul in the process of asking his questions because nobody had been asking, well, what's the reward? How do you go about it? You know, how do you get started? And so it gotten King Saul's attention. And um, <clears throat> one of the Marines here at our church, he's in his 90s now, but he's known this virtually his whole life. He said, here's one of the things you need to know. Never volunteer for anything. Never. In the military, never volunteer for anything. I guess nobody told David because oh, David's questions caused him to be noticed. Pretty soon he's talking to King Saul. In verse 31, it says, when David, uh, words that David had spoken were heard, they repeated them to before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul says to David, you're not able to go against that Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father's flock, for his father. And when there was a lion or a bear and came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. First call, Saul goes, You can't go. You're too young and you're too inexperienced. Then David said, I've had experience. God has delivered me before and he will do it again. And Saul says, Well, okay, go. But then the next thing is, Wait a minute, where are my armor? I know it's just 3x long. But um, try it on, David. And so uh, David, uh, it's, it's way too big for him, and he's never fought in something like that. And he just says, that's not the way I can go about fighting. I mean, here David has only showed up because he's on a mission of mercy in obedience to his dad to bring refreshments to his brothers. But he gets there, and he's shocked at how Goliath is smearing God's people and God's honor. And then he's surprised and dismayed at how nobody is shocked anymore or doing anything about it. Then he takes this derision from his brother and the discouragement from the king. And, I mean, it's like death by friendly fire. And then there's the giant who's intimidated everybody. But David is going out to fight him. Verse 40 says, Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, this is a little aside, but if you went back and read in 1 Samuel, the Israelites are in a fight with the Philistines before this. And do you remember when Moses was getting them set up to have a tabernacle, they actually, 
he had them create an Ark of the Covenant. It was a box that nobody was supposed to touch, and in the box was the Ten Commandments and uh, a rod of Aaron's that had just sprouted spontaneously, showing God's favor in his life, and a few other things in there, like some of the manna. And so nobody was supposed to touch the box, but the idea that they had was God lived in the box. So in, while king, Saul was king, somebody came up with the idea, you know what we should do? We should take God with us into the fight, make it a holy war. There's no chance we would lose. But shock of all shocks, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they went and they put it in the temple of their god, Goliath's god, Dagon. And when they came back the next morning, Dagon, which was a statue, had fallen over and was bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. God has a sense of humor. So they, whoops, that isn't right. They stand Dagon back up. Come on, you're supposed to be standing here. You're our God. And they come back the next day, and he's fallen over again, and he's broken into pieces, including his head has, has come off. Okay? And so he's cursing them out using the names of his gods, and this event had just happened shortly before that. So either Goliath wasn't that great of a student or the lesson had been lost on him. Verse 44 says, The Philistines said to David, Come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. So then the Philistine arose and he came and he drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. The story goes on to say he took out Goliath's own sword to cut off his head. You can see here that David says the battle is the Lord's. And I want all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel. David was standing in that place of God. It was kind of the crux move, wasn't it, where he had to decide, am I going to follow God? If I follow God, look where he's going to take me into the middle of this battle. What's going to happen? Can I still trust God? And he knew the answer is yes. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole chapter in one of his books and then a whole new book called David and Goliath. And he did a TED talk on it as well, where he's talking about underdogs and champions. And he, Gladwell suggests that maybe Goliath had double vision because he said to David, you came out to me with sticks. Well, David would have had just one stick, a staff. And uh, so uh, he wonders if he's having some kind of uh, health issues that uh, a lot of large people have and uh, that he's not really seeing David clearly. Maybe his vision was impaired. And he also says that Goliath was certainly expecting a different kind of fight, like, more like a wrestling match. And here David comes out uh, with a sling, and uh, slingers could throw stones hard and fast a long way. So he concluded, you know, it wasn't really like an underdog against a champion. It was not as on a lopsided a fight. And uh, Gladwell's conclusion is, you know, you can overcome big obstacles that are in your way, and you can win. Well, okay, 
So you say it wasn't that big of a fight. Well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and from a desk 2,000 years later, you can probably be pretty brave, but um, nobody saw it that way on the battlefield that day. Nobody for 40 days had said, hey, I'm the guy that's going to step up. Everybody was quaking in fear. King didn't want to go fight Goliath. It looked like certain death. And the moral of this story is not that you can overcome big obstacles in your own strength and look back and say, oh, that wasn't that bad. The whole point is that God is the real champion. And he teams up with people like you and me and David who say, I'm going to take on that crux move and it's scary and it's lonely and I take on the challenge and then suddenly it's over and God did something amazing. David is an example for us because he trusted God. He listened to God. He let God's spirit guide his life. He let God lead him into a situation where there was danger, where there was an impossible giant who looked invincible, and he had the confidence that God would bring him through it. And God did. Our God is amazing. I mean, who's the real giant? It's the Lord, God. He said God has proved himself faithful with the bear and with the lion who attacked before, and he will deliver me again. So he had confidence as he looked back at the God's track record that he's never failed me yet. We can do the same as we look back at God's track record with God's people. His timing to us seems slow sometimes. You wonder, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? He's never late. He always takes care of his people. God comes through. David wrote a bunch of letters about this, of course, and I picked out a few of them, but you could find others where he's talking about being in a battle and God wins through him. Psalm 60, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoes. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. David certainly did that day, didn't he? Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them and send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lies. He had to be thinking of Goliath at that point and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And then verse 15, Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Or then in Psalm 35, David said, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spirit of javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. 
Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue will tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. What do you do when you're facing the giant, when you're facing fear? You know, we end up having fear and intimidation. When you're facing something that looks invincible, the Bible says, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And we can realize God is great. If he's leading me the end of this, then he's with me, even in the fight. See, the great champion really is the Lord. And it's not really our fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. So this picture of David versus Goliath is really a picture of something and someone greater who is to come. That greater is Jesus. Jesus Christ overcame the truly impossible obstacles of sin and death, and he did it for us. You see, if you think it's crazy that a whole nation would entrust one teenager with their national security because he was willing to trust God and to take a risk, he was willing to speak the truth and to stand for God, even if he had to stand alone, well, it was also crazier that the whole world would be entrusted to one little baby to come and to live and to grow up and to teach and then to die for the sin of the whole world so that sin would be forgiven in the sight of God and in the process, death would be nullified. I mean, it's not even Christmas time, but that's where the story gets started with Jesus being that gift that God gave. And Jesus comes and is the only one who has the ability and is willing to take on sin and defang it, to take on death and nullify its power over us. See, there's some takeaways for us. Jesus Christ is our champion. And our job is just like David, to trust and to obey and to serve humbly and to speak boldly, even when circumstances and abilities and resources may not seem adequate. God guides, God provides. So how do you shape reality? You have a choice. You can look at it with the eyes of the world or you can say, God, show me how you see this situation. What do I need to be thinking? What do I need to be talking about? How do I stay focused on what God would have for me in this situation? Because no matter how big the giant, God is greater still. God is all-powerful. And we need to be passionate about the things that bring glory to God. Let's pause and pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of one of your servants who, although he was young, was passionate that your name would be honored that your name would be lifted up. You call in our names. And sometimes we are like King Saul or the rest of the army, living in fear that we don't need. So set us free from fear. Give us courage. Give us hearts that choose to follow you in all things. Give us the boldness to speak to the people that we know who need Christ. Give, help us to see the opportunities that are coming our way. Help us to look at the giants in our life and to say, I can overcome those by the power of God and in the name of the Savior. And we thank you that you are our champion and we are on your team. Amen.